According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Hebrews. We are in Hebrews chapter 4. We've had a couple of lessons in this chapter already, uh, centering mostly on verses 1 and 2. We're going to uh, spend our time today in verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And so we've got a couple of interesting quotes. We've got um, some uh, context to understand our Sabbath rest, context that includes David's quotation in Psalm 95, context that quotes the book of Genesis, as he has said somewhere, uh, verse 4. Don't you love that? You ever try to quote a Bible verse and you can't remember where it is? And so all you can say is, well, you know, somewhere, okay, in like maybe in Genesis where it says, and God rested from, on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. And so there's a tandem from Genesis to Psalms, and I think it's vital that we spend some time recognizing that and identifying what's, uh, what's happening here, all right? So before we do get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father to set aside our distractions to humble us for eternal truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have on this day to assemble together Father, there are our brothers and sisters around this world in different places that cannot meet publicly, openly, in a uh, building such as this. Father, there are um, brothers and sisters that uh, in Muslim lands that can't let it be known that they are born-again believers in Jesus Christ. So they stay hidden. They uh, podcast on their smartphones. Um, Father, I just thank you for uh, the grace you've extended I thank you for the freedom that our nation possesses. Uh, we see things diminishing, but Father, you are a God of grace, and we thank you that on this day we have the freedom to assemble. So bless our study. Uh, bless it abundantly, Father. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I actually am hoping that we have a visitor this morning that uh, you might pray for that. We spent uh, a week in Houston. Uh, learning from a, a Muslim, a former Muslim, a man that was born in Iran and and uh, got saved, and uh, now he's a uh, uh, pastor in Spokane, Washington. And uh, interesting, the, the the things that he taught us on Islam and the things that he encouraged us in how to give the gospel to uh, to a Muslim uh, was very very fruitful. And then lo and behold, on Friday afternoon, I in, the Lord put me face to face with a girl born in Iran, uh, Muslim. Uh, but kind of, sort of, not really, and wondering about it. So I gave her my card and invited her to come to Austin Bible Church. And if she wants to learn about Jesus from the Bible and uh, from a Christian standpoint, we would be very delighted to uh, to have her come visit us. So in any event, if I switch gears halfway through the message and start getting very evangelical, you might pray <laughs> related to that. But Anyway, but some folks can't come openly and be seen coming or be known if there's family, if there's other folks for which attending a, a service here might be problematic, then uh, thank, thank God we got a website and they can stream a MP3 file and uh, 
and so forth. Anyway, so praying for that. Hebrews uh, chapter 4 now, therefore let us fear. And we realize that we want to never lose sight of the fear of the Lord. If we lose the wrong, the right kind of fear, then we're going to have the wrong kind of fear. Therefore let us fear, while I promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. And so we recognize that Israel entering into rest corporately was one thing, and it didn't happen, uh, not under Moses. And even under Joshua, when they did finally enter into the land corporately, even under Joshua, they did not receive the rest that was promised. And we're going to talk about that because in verse 9 it says, or I'm sorry, verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. And so we realize that even though under Joshua there was a conquest, even under Joshua they crossed the Jordan and they, they settled the land, uh, they did not enter into the rest as per Genesis 2-2. All right. And so we want to be clear on those aspects as well. We're going to talk about that. So there's a corporate entry, but then there's a personal entry. Any one of you may seem to have come short of it. And so there is an individual basis by which believers apply faith to the Word of God and enter into His rest, God's rest. And uh, these are the things that we want to be clear on. So uh, we dealt with that in verse 1, that it is ever-present. There is an ever-present that we need this fear of the Lord. It is uh, a, a prime attitudinal prerequisite for us to function before God. If we lose that fear of the Lord, then we're not going to enter into the rest that He's invited us to enter into. So it's an attitudinal prerequisite. There is an ever-present potential for unbelief. Tomorrow we can walk away from the Lord. Today we can walk away from the Lord. This is the warning that we saw back in chapter 6. Take care, brethren, that they're not... I'm sorry, back in chapter 3 in verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Believers can fall into unbelief. We can stop walking by faith. And that's not a danger of losing our salvation. We still have eternal life. But it is a danger that when we're not walking by faith, we're not entering into this rest. And we're not entering into the veil. We're not entering into our priesthood. And we're not standing before Him in the way that He has designed for us to do. So there's an ever-present potential for unbelief. That's why it says, let us fear. There's an ever-present potential for unbelief. And that's a factor in our ever-present time of need. You know, we approach the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, guess what? All the time is a time of need. All day, every day is a time of need that we are never to the point where we don't need the grace and the mercy of God. Without a sanctified fear that we call reverence, then we have a certain fear that uh, chapter 10 is going to talk about, a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. And uh, we want no part of that at all. So let's continue to fear Entering God's rest is a promise of God to mankind. It's a promise that transcends all dispensations and covenants. It goes back to day six. It goes back to God resting on day seven. It goes back to Genesis 2, verse 2 and verse 3. It is a promise. And in this chapter, we're going to see from Abraham's day, I'm sorry, from Adam's day to Moses' day to Joshua's day to David's day to us today, this promise of rest is a promise for every passing generation. Generations come, generations go. God stays faithful and His rest is available for each generation as we live upon this earth. So it is an ongoing promise for us today. 
Now, there was, of course, a uh, connection with physical land during Moses and Joshua's day. We accept that, but we don't, we don't allow that to distract us. And we don't allow that to cause us to miss the bigger picture. All right, God's promise of rest in Moses and Joshua's day was a spiritual promise linked to a physical promise of physical land. And I'm not going to go back into it again this morning, but just read through Deuteronomy 8 or 12, verses 8 through 12, and you're going to see that the land was promised to them and their enjoyment of that promise and their, the, the rest they would have in that land was definitely a blending of a spiritual rest along with the physical rest that they were to have in that physical land. But don't allow that to sidetrack you from what we're going to apply, all right? Because Sabbath rest, yes, God gave them a Sabbath in Mosaic law, but Sabbath is older than Mosaic law. Sabbath goes all the way back to day seven. God rested on the seventh day. He blessed it. He sanctified it. He made it as a promise to each generation of humanity upon this earth. And so when he then added it to Mosaic law and incorporated it within the the earthly and the temporal and the land, uh, the physical promises, that didn't change the spiritual reality that preceded it or that follows law. You see what I'm saying? That applies to us today. So uh, I'll have more to, to deal with that as we as we proceed. Anyway, all this was out of verse 1. We had some other things here as well. The, the generation of Israel failed to enter the rest corporately, that is nationally, but the promise that remains for the heavenly people of God must be entered into individually. It says in verse 1, any one of you. That's individual. It says in verse 6, it remains for some to enter it. Okay? Not all do, but some can. See? And so it's on an individual basis, not a corporate basis, that we individually have this rest before the Lord. It may seem to us that we fall short of God's rest. And maybe my favorite word in verse 4 is the seem to. Okay? Any one of you may seem to have come short of it. And the idea of seeming to have come short of it tells you that uh, maybe we haven't that we think we have or we're afraid that we have, but God has made provision so that if we want to enter that rest, we can. We can uh, trust in Him. We can apply the, the promises by faith. We respond by faith. We unite the Word of God with faith. We enter into His rest. It's as easy as that. And so uh, if we seem to have fallen short of it, let's uh, reevaluate where our fear is and let's fear the Lord and let's get back on track. And so I like that as well. All right, then verse 2, we are the evangelized ones. We have had the good news preached to us, just as they did also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. And so the promise has been given. We've received good news. We know that rest is available. Isn't that good news? Okay, and remember, don't be confused by the word evangelize or don't be confused with the verb, with uh, the good news that's preached, all right? Euangaleo or euangalia. Uh, it simply means good news. And uh, it may be the same as the good news that gave you eternal life in September of 1973, or it might be a different kind of good news. And we have to ask ourselves every time we come across it in the text, what, what are we talking about here? Is this phase one salvation, phase two salvation, phase three salvation? What's the good news that we're talking about here? So if we've had the good news preached to us, is that about Jesus dying on the cross so we, our sins can be forgiven and we have eternal life? Or is it good news that's preached to us about 
God's rest that's available to us on a daily basis. That's what we have here. It's experiential in this context. So we have had the good news preached to us, as they did also. But the word they heard did not profit them. Is that the word's fault? No, it's not the word's fault. So the Exodus generation as a redeemed people had good news of national corporate rest preached to them. And that's uh, not only in Exodus 3, but Exodus 33. It's in Numbers, it's in Deuteronomy. In most of those instances, when the good news of rest was preached to them, they were already a redeemed people. All right. In, in Exodus 3, they were not yet a redeemed people, but he then promised them two things in Exodus 3. He promised them that he would save them, and then he promised them that he would lead them into rest. After uh, he saves them, after the Exodus, he still makes these promises that he would lead them into rest. And so the promise of rest is a promise that's given to a redeemed people. I want to be clear on that. You and I are a redeemed people. We're already saved. And so the promise of rest is a promise to a redeemed people. And it's not a promise that, that says, I'm going to save you. We're already a saved people. It is a present rest that's available to us because we are a saved people. And we can respond by faith to the word of God. Yet in the face of conflict, Israel, the Exodus generation, they feared giants instead of fearing the Lord. And so they didn't walk by faith. They didn't walk by faith. And uh, you can read about that in Numbers 13 and Numbers 14. And so here we are. We are continuously presently a having been evangelized one. We are the ones with a promise. We have a promise of rest. And so we should uh, respond by faith and enter into that rest. Why does the profitable word not profit? Well, same reason that the powerful word doesn't save. Okay, The gospel is powerful unto salvation. But not everyone gets saved. Is that a power deficiency in the gospel? Not at all. The Word of God does not always profit everybody. Is that, a, is that an edification deficiency in the Word of God? Not at all. If you don't unite it with faith, if you don't receive it as given and respond by faith, then there's no profit in the Word of God. Because the Word of God is God-breathed and profitable, 2 Timothy 3.16. But if it's not united by faith, as it says here, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. And so when you hear the Word of God, here you are this morning listening to the Word of God. Are you in fellowship or out of fellowship? Spiritual or carnal? And uh, if you're spiritual, if you're in fellowship, and as you're receiving it, accept it by faith. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. With humility, receive the Word implanted that's able to save your souls. And so unite it with faith. You're hearing it, you say, Father, I'm hearing it. I'm accepting, Father, that your word is true. I'm accepting, Father, that you love me. I'm accepting, Father, that this is the doctrine I need to apply. And so I'm accepting the word of God by faith. I'm searching the scriptures to see if these things are so. This is our process. This is our humility process. And I want to do so by faith. All right, which gets us then into verse 3. Yeah, if we fail, it's not the word's fault. It's our fault. And what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to take the first half of verse 3, and then I'm going to take the second half of verse 3 and combine it with verse 4 and 5. I think the, punctua- the punctuation is problematic. I think even in the Greek manuscripts, the punctuation is problematic. And uh, so where do we put our commas? Where do we put our periods? Uh, how do we handle the concessive clause of the although? 
uh, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Is that a contrast with what precedes it or is that a contrast with what follows it? Um, it can be read either way. And I think it makes better sense if, if we just focus on the first half of the verse and then we're going to take the rest of it later. Um, we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Is that what he said? It's a, it's a curious quote. And the quote doesn't seem to go with the first half of the verse, but it, it, is, uh, it is interesting to me. All right. For we who have believed. Is that you? Is that me? Is that talking about you got saved back in the day? Or is this talking about we who unite the Word of God with faith? We who in our testing circumstances walk by faith. Enter into, presently, enter that rest, just as he has said. All right, and then the quote is actually an ironic quote of contrast because they didn't do what this verse says we, we do, we did. Okay, so grammatically, long slide. I oh, know, sorry. We who have believed, okay, and this is, this is, this might bore you and maybe not, but it's an aorist participle. And um, if you know the difference between an aorist and a, and a present, Okay, an aorist is a punctiliar, a present is a continuous, and, uh, and participles are used in different ways, and particularly when they are connected to verbs, uh, to, to finite verbs, all right? And in this case, the verb that's connected is enter. We who have believed enter that rest. And so we have a present tense verb that is, uh, that is the, the verbal activity is, is being done by the aorist tense participle people. Right? So, um, you know, so we who got dressed this morning came to church. Right? So the, the verb, and thank you for doing that. The, 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 the verb is came to church. Uh, but the, the subject of that verb, who is the people that came to church? We who got dressed this morning. All right? Okay. Maybe it's a dumb example. It's the best I could do. Um, but so we have we who have believed, or quite simply, we who believed. You might even take the have out of there. I prefer to take the have out of there. Um, I, don't wanna, I don't want you to get the idea that it's continuous action. I don't want you to get the idea that it's a perfect tense where it's a past completed action with present ongoing results. I would rather read it as a simple aorist participle, we who believed. And just keep it punctiliar. Keep it just a, as a moment. And it doesn't say when it happened, it just happened. So Whenever it happened, and it's as an heiress, is it can be punctiliar, but it can be it can be iterative. It can be uh, at several places in in various stages, right? Every time you believe, every time you believe, if you've got a test, and instead of flying off the handle and punching somebody in the nose, instead you believe, you just pursue in the promises of God. Well, then what happens when you do that? You presently enter into. His rest. Each time you apply doctrine, each time you apply faith to the Word of God, you enter into rest. So, we who believed, that is the hoi pistusantis, pistusantis, that's an aorist participle, the hoi pistusantis. The aorist active part is not very common. It's only used 15 times in the New Testament. And, and I think in a, in a sharp contrast to present active participles, which we see everywhere, present active participles, 54 times in the New Testament. So it is much more common 
to have, if you're going to have a, a participle of pistuo, uh, you know, only 15 of them are eras, 54 of them are, are present tense. And we're very common, do we, do we see the present participle? So we who believe, he who believes has eternal life. He who does not believe does not have eternal life, for the wrath of God abides on him. In most cases, when we have a present active participle, we're talking about somebody that is born again, somebody that is saved, somebody that's going to go to heaven when he dies. We who believe. We're called believers. Believers. And typically that's a present active participle. But this is not a present active participle. This is an aorist active participle. And so um, now I'm going, to, I'm going to read you these passages and we're going to draw some conclusions. It's an inference that we're drawing, but I want to caution you. When you do an inductive study, you can't just bank on it as, a, as an exclusive rule. I don't want you to go out of here saying that the aorist participle always means this and the present participle always means that. That would actually be incorrect. okay? Because it's not just the participles themselves that are the giveaway, it's the participles and how they're being used in, that, in their context with other verbs and other things that are going on in those passages. So, so, um, so don't try to just claim a, claim a thing here that says every aorist participle means it's experiential and every present participle means that it's positional. That's not true. In this passage, it happens to be true. Okay? In most of the present participles, it happens to be true. That he who believes, present tense, is a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And it talks about being saved. This passage doesn't talk about being saved. This passage does not... See, if it did... Let me simplify it for you here. If, if this verse says, we who have believed... In other words, if you're a saved believer in Jesus Christ, then it's automatic that you've entered into rest. Well, that doesn't make any sense because the whole point of these commands is don't fall short. Enter into rest. Enter into rest. There remains a rest. Enter into it. It remains for some of you to enter into it. The whole exhortation of Hebrews is don't fall short. Don't fail to enter into the rest. So this can't be a universal statement that applies to all saved people in the church age. Not at all. No. So uh, some other examples, just uh, a couple of them here. Luke one forty-five. And it's curious to me that we have one from Luke and one from Acts and one from Hebrews. If, in fact, Luke is the author of Hebrews, then it, it shows a consistency in the usage. But Luke one forty-five, Mary is getting news of a, uh, of a pregnancy that uh, just boggles her mind because she's a virgin and virgins don't expect to be pregnant. But in Luke 1, um, this happens. And then she goes to visit Elizabeth. And then Elizabeth hears the words. And uh, in verse 44, she says, Behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. All right, and so... We have a statement here of happiness, of makarios, blessedness, happiness, of she who believed. And is she talking about herself or is she talking about Mary? They both applied it. Um, But the Lord said, you're going to have a baby. And she believed it. And this is just an aorist participle. This is just a promise was said and 
the, the, it was accepted by faith. It was united by faith in the one who heard. And so she believed the word. You're going to have a baby. And she believed it. Is that, does that mean, is that the moment she received eternal life and had her sins forgiven and gets to go to heaven when she died? No, it has nothing to do with evangelism. It has nothing to do with, with what we call phase one salvation. But it was a promise of having a baby. And she believed. Eris tense. Eris participle as a believer. All right. Acts 11.21 is another example. Acts 11.21. Another heiress participle. And uh, The hand of the Lord was with them and a large number who believed. Let me back up. Verse um, 19. See, there's persecution, there's conflict. And um, especially with the martyrdom of Stephen. So verse 19 says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and to Cyprus and to Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. So who are these people that are scattered? They're, they're believers. They're saved ones. They're being scattered and they're speaking. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch. They began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Isn't that an interesting combination? Because they believed, then they turned to the Lord. Two different things. Some people would want to say, well, isn't that the same thing? And uh, if, if, I'm, if I've believed, why would I turn to the Lord? Wait a minute. I thought believing was turning to the Lord. Or, Wait a minute, maybe this is a different kind of believing. Maybe this is an experiential believing. In any event, there's the participle there. In contrast to the present active participles, and these are the ones we're very familiar with. These are the ones that we know quite well. These are the ones... Uh, for example, in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And it's a present active participle. To, all, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I love that. And I love the fact that these are present participles. They do stress continuous action. They stress eternal uh, security in, uh, in different ways. Chapter 3.22 even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there is no distinction. The righteousness of God is bestowed on all who believe. All right? And so those are the normal passages. Those are the ones with present participles. Those are the ones that talk about um, having your sins forgiven, receiving eternal life, and, and being a believer. Okay? Those are the, the more common expressions as participles of pistuo. Romans 4, 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You get saved when you believe. And then the text my mother used to lead me to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, 5, 10, and 13. Whoever believes, and I love that, whosoever, Whoever, right? Whosoever means me. 
Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. Verse 5, who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so this is our, our faith is what overcomes the world. Verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. So it's used twice there. Actually three times there. With he who believes, he who does not believe, and he who believes. And then verse 13, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. If you're a believer, you should know it. If you're a believer, you shouldn't have that assurance. You should know with a certainty. It just bugs me to tears when I talk to people and they ask me, you know, if they're saved, if they're born again, and where they're going to go when they die. And they say, well, I hope I'm going to heaven. Well, you don't know? You tell me you don't know? The Bible says you're supposed to know. Why don't you know? So, um, anyway, the much more common in present participles of Pistuo that we're talking about being saved. We're talking about our status as believers in Christ. Not so here with the aorist participle of uh, Hebrews 3. The significance of the aorist participle in Hebrews 3 is not the positional truth of being a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, but it is the moment-by-moment promise of rest and the mechanism of faith. It is a moment-by-moment promise and the mechanism of faith. We who believe, we who believe. And every time we believe, uh, today, tomorrow, the next day, this afternoon, whenever, when you believe, the next time you apply faith, because we walk by faith, not by sight, right? So the next time you pistuo, you know that you pastuo all day, every day, right? You don't just, the last time you pastuoed was not September of 1973. We continue to pastuo all day, every day. We will continue to believe God, believe His Word, believe His promises, including His promise of rest. So when we believe, we presently enter that rest. So it's not the, uh, being, the positional truth of being a born-again believer in Jesus Christ but the moment-by-moment promise of rest and the mechanism of faith. And uh, it's curious to me, I asked this question when we were in John 14 in the Life of Christ series, it is curious to me, we were just in John 14 last hour actually, um, believe in God, believe also in me. What's he talking about there? Is he, is he telling the disciples to get saved? I, I believe all of his disciples except Judas already were saved. And uh, Judas had walked out at the end of chapter 13. So in John chapter 14, when he says, believe in God, believe also in me, he's not talking to unbelievers, telling them to become believers and get saved. But he is telling his disciples they've got to walk by faith. They've got to walk by faith. And they've got to have their faith in the Father, their faith in the Son. And thankfully, they're about to receive the Holy Spirit, whereby they'll be empowered to, uh, to walk by faith with the Father and with the Son. They'll have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. So do not let your heart be troubled. It's, a, it's an occupational hazard for believers because, let's face it, we live in the, in the fallen world. In the world we will have tribulation. So it's natural that there will be moments when um, we will be vulnerable to having our hearts troubled. Well, don't let it happen. Walk by faith. If you're on the verge of letting that happen, stop it. Believe in the Father, believe in the Son. 
Believe in God, believe also in me. And remember, today can be the day you hear a trumpet. So believe in the Father, believe in the Son, and remind yourself that He went to prepare a place for you and He's coming back any moment now. And that's the whole point in these first four verses here. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Again, it's experiential. And and sure, we face discouragements. Sure, we've got uh, we've got things. Uh, in fact, you'll notice in chapter 4 and verse 1, there's again the danger of losing heart. And then there's the remainder of chapter 4 there about the body and the outer man perishes, the inner man is renewed day by day, so we don't lose heart. And at the end of chapter 4 it says, therefore we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying and our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So yeah, there's tests. Bad stuff happens. We get sick. Our kids get sick. We got a two-month-old baby in the Dell Children's Hospital. What do you do? I mean, it's, it's, it's a moment where a believer could lose heart. And if you reject doctrine, if you just throw your Bible out the window and start looking at things with, with human wisdom and with the flesh... Well then, give it up. You just lost heart. <laughs> okay, So keep your eyes on the Lord. Stay in the Word of God. Remind yourself of these wonderful truths. Keep looking at what you're supposed to be looking at. Look at what you can't see. That's how chapter 4 ends and takes us into chapter 5. Well, we look not at the things which are seen. Quit looking at the stuff you can see. Look at the stuff that is invisible because you've got those kind of eyes too. Use those eyes. Look at the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. If you don't look at the eternal and all you look at is the temporal, then you're going to lose heart. And so keep your eyes. And then we've got the promise of resurrection. We've got the tent being torn down. Anyway, all of this leads into chapter 5, verse 7. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. We want to walk by faith. We want to be aorist participle pistuo believers who not only believe with an aorist, with an uh, present participle, we are eternally believers, but then moment by moment in time on an experiential basis, when faced with a test, we believe God. When faced with a test, we believe a, a Bible promise. We believe the Word of God. And so we walk by faith, not by sight. The moment-by-moment promise of rest and the mechanism of faith. So you want to enter into God's rest? Walk by faith. You want to presently enter that rest? Walk by faith. Be a believer. We presently enter that rest. Presently enter that rest. The significance of the present indicative. Okay, So remember, it was an aorist participle, precedes the action of the present indicative. We have a present indicative. It's a statement of reality. Continuous action in present time. This is not a promise that when you die and go to heaven, then you will enter into his rest. Terrible, terrible approach to the book of Hebrews. This says today, day after day, as long as it's called today, we who believed, aorist participle, presently, now, continuously, enter into that 
rest. What rest? The Father's rest. The rest that he introduced on day 7 in Genesis 2-2. Presently enter that rest. The significance of that present indicative is not the assurance of heaven after physical death. Don't get me wrong. We're going to go to heaven when we die. It will be a place of rest. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. But this chapter is not talking about that. All right? I'm not hostile to the idea. I can find other passages to teach that. This passage is not talking about going to heaven when you die. This passage is talking about believing the promises of God and presently entering into rest. It is the present mental attitude of faith rest. To me, that's a marvelous... And when Colonel Thiem coined that, before I was born, but when he coined that and put it in a book, and when I read the book, I love it. To me, it's a marvelous term, faith rest. And it's hyphenated and it's linked together. You can't separate them. If you, if you stop walking by faith, you just threw away your rest. But when you walk by faith, when we who believe, we enter into that rest. It is the present mental attitude of faith rest through any and every testing of life. And you know, you don't have to know how this particular test is going to work out. You don't have to know the mechanics. You don't have to know the result. You don't have to know where it's taking you. You just know God. And you trust God. And you trust what He said. He said it's going to work together for good. I have a hard time believing that, but I believe Him. Right? That's where you can believe and then say, help my unbelief. Because God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And your humanity, your flesh is thinking, well, I'm feeling pretty abandoned right now. But your word says I'm not, so I believe you, Lord. And you accept it by faith. And so at that moment, you just quieted your soul. You just claimed that promise. You just accepted that, that word. You just became an heiress participle of he who believes. And... In becoming an heiress participle of he who believes, what then have you just done? Presently, continuously enter into that rest. Just by the the, the consequences of claiming a promise. Applying faith. Uniting faith to the word so that it profits you. So notice in the present tense here, notice um, continuous action in present time, the here and now, not when we die and go to heaven. But verse 3, present tense, here and now, we enter that rest. We who believe enter that rest. Verse 6, it remains for some to enter it. Verse 10, the one who has entered his rest, oh, wait a minute, look at that. Some of his readers have already gotten there. For the, uh, the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. I assume the people he's writing to aren't dead in heaven already. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. This is such a treasure, which is why it's heartbreaking that Arminians will twist it and teach it like, work hard to stay saved. (laughs) You want to go to heaven when you die, don't you? So don't blow it now. Work hard, stay safe, keep... uh, And then they just preach it in a a terribly destructive way that I think just promotes fear on the part of every Arminian out there, terrified they're going to die and go to hell if they don't work hard enough to stay saved. 
when really this chapter has nothing to do with that. The whole book has nothing to do with that. It's about a precious possession we have now. A mental attitude dynamic, a, a, a stability in our thinking that we should have now, and He's blessed us with the capacity to have it now. Just as He blessed it in Adam's day, He blessed it in, in Moses' day, He blessed it in, in uh, Joshua's day, He blessed it in David's day. He's blessed it in our day more than ever before. More than ever before. A present mental attitude of faith rests through any and every testing of life. And so it's interesting. So we've got these early chapters. Chapter 3, chapter 4, they're stressing entering into rest, entering into rest. Don't fall short, enter into rest. Then we have a transition where entry in the later chapters of Hebrews uh, starts to emphasize entering within the veil. Now it's a slightly different emphasis, but I think it's the same activity. I think when we enter into rest, we do enter experientially into our priesthood, into our priestly function. And so entering within the veil. So whereas early chapters of Hebrews stress entering into this rest, later chapters of Hebrews will stress entering within the veil. So let's look at a few of these. And I'll just tease you with them because this is something to keep in mind for down the road when we get there. But if we do our homework well today, then we're going to do ourselves a favor in chapter 6 and in chapter 10. So... um, God made a promise to Abraham. He could swear by no one greater, so he swore by himself. We saw that last hour, right? God doesn't put a hand on a Bible and say, so help me me, right? So help me God. You know, humans can take oaths and invoke God. God is God. But he does uh, swear by his own name, his own integrity, saying, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply you. And uh, men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them, an oath given as confirmation is the end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose interposed with an oath. So God who cannot lie, and then He takes an oath. By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So on the basis of everything has God done, how can we not? How can we not reach forward and lay hold? This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. One which enters within the veil. So now we have a, it's a new emphasis in Hebrews. In the early chapters it was entering into rest. In the later chapters it starts to emphasize entering within the veil. What a privilege. What an what a, what a awesome privilege and, and source of provision for you and for me. And in particularly for these, um, the recipients of this book, if they themselves were former priests, if they themselves were priests who came into the church age then and had to flee Jerusalem, um, if they're the ones that are thinking about maybe going back and, uh, and returning back to Jerusalem to, to serve in their priesthood, to serve... Uh, to die with their brothers in the Roman attack. Um, Whatever the case may be. The idea that there is a veil that we can enter into. See, they know they will never enter into the veil. Only one guy gets to one day a year. You know, but we have a veil. And Jesus went as a forerunner. 
and entering within that veil as a provision for church age saints. And so uh, this is something to, stay, to, to pay attention to. Notice in verse 20, Jesus entered as a forerunner for us. So if you send a forerunner into something, what does that tell you? Yeah, we're supposed to go with him. Are we, are we not yoked to him? Are we not fellow laborers? Do we not? Yes, we do. Forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's a good thing. Because if it was an Aaronic priesthood, it would, wouldn't make any sense. And we couldn't qualify and he wouldn't qualify. And, uh, but it's not an Aaronic priesthood from Aaron. It's a Melchizedek priesthood. And the requirements there are entirely different. And we qualify. And so uh, we'll be dealing with that. In chapter 10, we'll be dealing with that. That we, have a, we enter within the veil. Therefore, brethren, verse, uh, Hebrews 10, 19, therefore, brethren, think he's talking to believers? Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. That's all of us. Who here has not been bought by the blood of Jesus? We are brothers. The blood of Jesus has provided for us entry. Confident entry. By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us. It's like the forerunner. This is the inauguration. He inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So when we take part in the bread and the cup, remember the bread, there's a veil doctrine attached to that. Not the cup. The cup is mentioned in verse 19. The blood of Jesus. That's the sacrifice. That's the basis for the propitiation. But the veil... What's the veil? His flesh. He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And since we have a great priest, a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with sincere heart and full assurance of faith. We don't need the labor. We've got the spiritual realities. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so we believe. We become heiress participle believers every time. There's a promise, we believe. There's a promise, we believe. And this day could be a tough day, but there's a promise, I believe. And every time I do, I'm entering within the veil, I'm entering within rest, and I'm entering within the veil. All right, so stay tuned for that. The um, just as he has said. Let's look at the rest of verse three, and let's look at verses four and five now. Just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. All right. So am I? A person, am I they? Am I, are you, are you they? Are you and I an object of God's vow, God's oath, that we shall by no means enter His rest? No. Well then, if I'm not under His ban, does it remain for for me to enter into His rest? Is it still available? Yes. It's actually universally available, except... For the vow that he takes that the Exodus generation 
would not enter his rest. Everybody else is available. Just as, I, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. God the Father's works were finished, as it says, from the foundation of the world. That, does that seem to, is there a disconnect there? Does that seem to bug you? You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was tracking with you there until that foundation of the world thing. <laughs> okay. And here's, here's what we want to get. There's a blessing in this huge blessing in this although his works were finished from the foundation of the world for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day god rested on the seventh day from all his works and again in this passage they shall not enter my rest so what's he doing why is the author of hebrews taking genesis 2 2 and combining it with psalm 95 Say, Pastor, my head's going to explode. <laughs> well, it's a good thing, though. Think about it. What, what, uh, what Hebrews is doing for us here is something marvelous. It's, uh, it's, it's a way to take Scripture, compare it to Scripture, put things together that maybe we wouldn't normally put together, we wouldn't think about putting it together, but to paint a larger picture than what would lead us into, I think, an incomplete view and really a, a flawed view of these things. I think the tandem of Genesis 2-2 and Psalm 95-11 is critical in avoiding a mistaken fixation on the Exodus generation and a consequent misapplication by the church because it's bigger than Moses and Joshua. It's bigger than just a generation of rebels that couldn't walk into the land flowing with milk and honey. It's actually a promise that goes back to day seven. It's a promise of rest that goes back to day seven, which was day one for Adam. <laughs> okay? Adam was created on day six. So, and it was the last thing that, that God did. So when Adam's eyes are open and he, I think he sees the Lord, but when his eyes are open and he begins his life, all the rest of God's work was done. Adam was the, uh, the, the last item there. And so all of his other work is done. And then on day one for Adam, day seven for, for uh, the Lord, he teaches him rest. He gives him the promise of rest. What are you going to do on day one? Hey, like I was joking, my son's got a new job and he's going to start on uh, April 2nd. And uh, <laughs> so... Wouldn't that be something if you, you take a new job and they welcome you to the company and on a day one they say, all right, today's a vacation day. <laughs> it kind of happened to me. I enlisted in the army and day one was Veterans Day. So they said, uh, we're going to start boot camp tomorrow. <laughs> but um, here's Adam created. I say he wakes up, but he's not really waking up when you're coming alive. Um, but Adam is created. God breathes in him the breath of lives. His eyes are open. He's, I think he's face to face with Jesus Christ in a Christophany. Uh, whatever the case may be, day one then he rests. And there's a promise of this. And yet, and yet, Psalm 95 gets combined here. Psalm 95 was during David's day. 
Let's look at Psalm 95 again. Psalm 95, 11. We quote it so much, and do we lose track of what's happening there? It's a Psalm of David. And um, the first half of the psalm is an is a invitation. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. You think he's saved? You think David's saved? You think his guests are saved? He's inviting believers to join him in corporate worship where all of them together are going to worship and shout joyfully to their Savior. They're already saved, but they're worshiping. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for it was He who made it, and His hands formed dry land. So yeah, we can go back to creation. We can talk about creation. But we are saved ones. He is our Creator. He is our Redeemer. He is our Savior, and so we're going to worship Him and praise Him. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And the whole point, I think, on creation, on that seventh-day Sabbath rest, is for Adam to know who his Maker is and to, and to worship. The Sabbath is a day of worship. For, we, for He is our God. We are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, sound familiar? Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah in the day of Massah in the wilderness. And so what's David doing? This is 1000 BC. This is 400 years after Meribah. But he's using the Exodus generation illustration to make his point. Today, if you would hear his voice, Today there's a temptation to fall away. Today there's a temptation to not live the Word of God. Today there's a temptation to not come and worship. Today there's a temptation to stop walking by faith, to be discouraged, to lose heart. Some test is going on and you decide that uh, you decide that uh, you got to deal with something. There's too much going on. I can't go to church today. There's so, i got too much to do. Now you got so much conflict going on, you better be under teaching. You better be walking by faith. Let's worship together. It's not an excuse to, to drift. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation. And they said, uh, and they are a people who err in their heart. They do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, they shall not enter into my rest. And so this is, this is excellent for me. I think this is this tandem of Genesis 2-2 and Psalm 95-11. I think it's critical in avoiding a mistaken fixation on the Exodus generation. It's so much bigger than the Exodus generation. The, the do not harden your heart like they did applies to us today like it had applied to David in his day, like it applies to our kids in their generation. It's going to apply to our grandkids in their generation. It's going to apply to tribulational saints in the tribulation. It's going to apply to millennial saints in the millennium. Every time you got believers walking by faith, they're going to have the admonition, 
Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as they did in the day of uh, Marah. Okay? So let's not get fixated on the Exodus generation. Let's see. We have a larger thing in view. Now, what are we dealing with here? God's works were finished. He rested from all His works. God's works were finished. God's works were finished. Does that mean He never did anything again after that? Well, of course not. Yeah, He had more to do. He did more. He rested on the seventh day. And then what did He do on the eighth day? What did He do on day one of the next week? He went back to work. Adam went to work. Adam had a lot of work to do. He had animals to name. He had a garden to cultivate. He, had, he, had, uh, the, he was told to guard it, to cultivate it, and to keep it, to guard it, Shamer. Okay? Adam had a lot of work to do. And I believe he started doing that work, and he got busy with that work. And he, started, and he named all the animals, and he realized the work was more than he could handle. He needed help. He wanted help. And uh, didn't have a helper. And so then, uh, you know, we know how that works, right? Put him to sleep, took a rib out, gave him a helper. Because none of the animals were sufficient. Do you think all that was on day six? Not at all. That was after day six, after day seven. That was day eight and belonging. However long it took him to do all that, to name all the animals and learn that something was missing. Whatever the case. All right? But God's works were finished. Here in Hebrews 4, it says in verse 3, although... His works were finished from the foundation of the world. That's a concessive clause. It's, a, it's, um, it's saying that although this was the case, he then said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He rested from all his works. And this is going to be paralleled from our rest. I don't want to give it away this morning, but notice in verse 10, the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So if you're still working, you're not resting. I don't have more to say on that when we get to verse 10. Because um, we want to make sure we don't abuse verse 10 when we quit working. We're going to quit working all right. but we're going to be faith walking. We're going to be faith resting, faith walking. We're going to be by faith letting Him do the work because God's the one that works in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. So unless we learn how to do that, then we're going to keep trying to work ourselves. And if we keep working, then we're not faith walking and faith resting. We're not letting Him do the work because we're doing the work. And every time we do the work, we mess it up. Every time we do the work, it falls short of the glory of God. What a pathetic replacement. Telling the perfect God, oh, I've got to handle on this, I'll do this. See, I don't need you to bail me out if it's something I can't handle. That's not faith walking, that's not faith resting. <laughs> we're, not, we're not letting God do the big stuff while we handle most of the normal, more normal stuff. How, how stupid is that? It's all God. God does all of it. We can't handle any of it. And if we tried, what are we really accomplishing apart from faith? Apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. 
Whatever is not from faith is sin. So it's going to be paralleled by our rest in just a few more verses. Let me spotlight something here. Let's look at Genesis 2 again. And part of us resting from our work is to be resting even as God rested from His work. So how did God rest? What was His method? What was His manner? What was His means? What was His activity? What was the purpose for His rest? And I think when you work your way through, you get the day-by-day account, and as each day passed, He reflected. As day one passed, He reflected. As day two passed, He reflected. As day three passed, He reflected. And each day, for most of those days, not only did He reflect upon it, but He observed a goodness. Okay? Um, observing the days without a goodness, like um, the separating the waters below and the waters above and the air. There's no goodness statement on that day, and that's a significant aspect. And so day by day, and so you look at the end of chapter 30, God saw all that He had made. Behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And so the purpose as each day is accomplished, the reflection is God did good, right? I might reflect at the end of the day and say, this day, this was a rotten day, <laughs> okay? This day sucked. This day was awful. This day was whatever. Get rid of that. Get rid of that. Reflect at the end of the day and say, God did good. God did good. Bob didn't do good, but God did good, Okay? There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed His work, which He had done. Completed, finished. Everything is now prepared. Everything that has been done is finished, prepared, and ready to then provide for everything moving forward. And so God rests to acknowledge that, to reflect on that. So God rested on the seventh day from all the work which He had done. And God blessed the seventh day. It's His day of blessing. He didn't bless the other six days, He blessed the seventh day. And He sanctified it. This is the promise in, in, Abraham, in Adam's day, in Moses' day, in every generation. The seventh day is sanctified. The principle of Sabbath rest is sanctified. Set apart for not profane use, for holy use. Set apart for spiritual purpose. Because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and which he had made. The Barah and the Asah, created and made. So this is what happens. And we should do something similar. If we're going to rest from all our work in the same way that He rested from His work, then what does that mean? That means we look back and we reflect and we acknowledge Him and we worship God and we keep our attention on the things above and we thank Him that this day is finished. We may not have tomorrow, but this day is finished and God done good. In all, and God is faithful today. And if there is a tomorrow, if rapture pending and physical death and whatever else, if by His grace He wakes me up for a new day tomorrow, well then, 
everything that's pre- that's been finished is complete it is satisfactory it is it is it is uh, sufficient so that as i move forward i'm equipped to walk with him i'm equipped to do what he's designed for me to do because his works are finished and my works are finished i'm done trying to do things in the flesh i'm done trying to earn and deserve stuff i'm done trying to put a finished work together whereby I can look back on it and reflect upon it and say, to Bob be the glory of great things Bob has done. I want to rest as God rested. I want to stop at the end of the day and say, God did good. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar did? Walking around on his roof, looking around, boasting in himself. How marvelous is Babylon the great? How marvelous is my kingdom? How great is me? And boasting in the things he had done, and before the word was finished coming out of his mouth, judgment hit him. And he had seven years of living like an animal. Okay? We need to rest as God rested. That means in our Sabbath rest, in our mental attitude of rest, we reflect on what God has done, not us. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. And that's our faith rest. And quit working yourself. Quit trying to impress God. Quit trying to be Cain bringing the dumb vegetables. It never works. It didn't work for Cain. It doesn't work for us. It never will work. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. All right. So we'll pick up on this next week, Lord willing and rapture painting. Father, I thank You for this truth. I pray that You continue to open our eyes to see we're already present participles of Pistuo. We're already believers. We're going to go to heaven when we die. But show us what it means to become aorist participles. Show us what it means to day by day, moment by moment, apply faith, unite faith through the Word of God, and uh, pass every test for the glory of Jesus Christ. Help us to rest from our work so that we watch what you do, Father. Thank you for being faithful. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.